U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the XO, Steven. Hey, Steven. Hey there, everyone. So, I think first off first, we tell everybody what's going on. They're going to be sad, just like <laughs> I'm sad, but... Uh, All right, folks. Well, yeah. um, in an effort to take care of myself because it is important to take care of yourself. Mental health is very important. Um, I have realized I'm stretching myself uh, a little too thin with uh, several things. So I will be stepping down as the uh, XO of the USN History Podcast. It has been a huge pleasure to be doing this show with you, Dale. And I've had a lot of fun, you know, showing people a lot of stuff regarding U.S. Naval history that History books don't go over all the time. Well, I think I could speak for our audience saying that we will miss you dearly. Oh, thank you. So for your your very last episode, I figured we'd do something fun, something that you keep getting confused about, and we're <laughs> going to talk about torpedoes. You mean, you mean mines at sea? Both. Oh, okay. So the uh, suggestively shaped conical things that have a propeller and go through the water and mines okay yeah we'll, we'll go through the history of torpedoes that way you don't leave here confused at all <laughs> that sounds wonderful we'll finally get the uh whole issue cleared up right so are you ready to get underway let's cast off one last time so as you can probably guess the modern torpedo is an underwater ranged weapon that is launched above or below the water surface, and it's self-propelled towards a target with a explosive warhead, which is designed to detonate either when it contacts the hull of whatever, or when it gets near to its target. Now, historically, this device was called a automotive, a automobile, a locomotive, or a fish torpedo which is, you know, also known just as a fish. The term torpedo was actually applied to a number of devices, most of which we call today mines. Oh, so a torpedo in the modern sense is called a car, and a torpedo in the classical sense is a mine. This isn't confusing at all. <laughs> So from about 1900, torpedo has been used to designate just as you know now as a self-propelled underwater explosive device. And in the 19th century, the battleship was evolved primarily with a view to engage other armored warships with huge guns. And the... Invention and refinement of the torpedo from 1860s and onward allowed small torpedo boats and other light surface vessels, you know, submarines or semi-submersibles, and, you know, even fishing boats or just a man in the water and light aircraft to be able to destroy these hugely armored ships without you know the need of large guns 
Yeah, one well-placed explosive in a poorly armored section of the ship. You're taking on water. Not even that, because usually the hull underneath the water would be more lightly armored. Oh, just to make it so it isn't sitting as low in the water? Uh, a number of different factors, other than just buoyancy. But up until torpedoes, you didn't need more armor under the water because of uh, projectiles, when they hit the water, decrease the velocity very, very quickly. So they're not as dangerous. I, I recall Mythbusters doing uh, an episode on that. and I mean, obviously they were only using bullets and arrows, but subsonic rounds after about six feet not dangerous to a person never mind an armored hull um supersonic rounds literally shattered on impact with the water so i don't know how cannonballs would react but i can't imagine much better right it's because of science you know the fluid dynamics and things of that nature we'll just say science yes because you know i'm not a yeah. scientist yeah, you're not I, a scientist I, my my chemistry sets on the other ship and uh that's why it sunk. Yeah. We're a history podcast, not a science show. That's true, too. So modern torpedoes are classified in different ways, such as lightweight, heavyweight, straight-running, autonomous homers, wire-guided, and they can be launched from a variety of platforms. In modern warfare, a submarine-launched torpedo is pretty much certain to hit its target the best defense in a counterattack is using another torpedo oh so where like missiles surface to air missiles air to air missiles they use chaff or flares and other countermeasures to throw them off target with a a torpedo self-propelled torpedo in the water not really an option you have to pretty much shoot one to intercept she want to intercept or just hope that you can outsteer the darn thing. Hmm, I would have thought they would have had like a giant fish magnet or something to, you know, like, oh, it's probably attracted a metal. Here, dangle it over the edge. Yeah, but there's a, your boat's made of a lot more metal. Yeah, but this one would be closer. <laughs> so, okay, so it becomes a proximity hit instead of a direct hit, which a yeah, proximity hit is very damaging too. At least there's no hole in the hull? Possibly? Not necessarily. Really? Not necessarily. You're making these things sound a lot more dangerous than I give them credit for, apparently. Yeah, hello. Underwater explosive. Very dangerous. Because you have the explosion, and then you have the water, and the explosion turns the water into a weapon itself. Very dangerous. <laughs> oh, and here I thought it was just a giant water balloon, effectively. So, uh, the word torpedo comes from the name, a genus of electric rays called, and I'm hoping I say this correctly, torpediniforms, which comes from the Latin torpere, which means to be stiff or numb. In naval usage, the American named Robert Fulton introduced the name to refer to a towed gunpowder charge used by the French submarine Nautilus to demonstrate that it could sink warships. So the very first torpedoes were effectively a game of Red Rover with gunpowder caskets. Kind of, sort of. It's 
we're going to tow this big bomb behind us, and let's see if we can swing it into somebody. I mean, at the very least, it sounds fun. Yeah. So, in the Middle Ages, torpedo light weapons were first proposed many centuries before they were, you know, successfully developed, as all inventions are. So, for example, in 1275, there was a Arab engineer named Hassan al-Ramah, who worked as a military scientist for the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt. And he wrote that it might be possible to create a projectile resembling an egg, which propelled itself through water whilst carrying fire. I'm not sure if he's describing a fireboat or... Because this is... This is the 13th century. They don't have anything that's self-propelled at this time. Right. But, you know, dreamers dream. But I don't think he's talking about a fireboat because he said a projectile that looks like an egg. So, but I mean, they had sails in that time. So put a sail on an egg and push it into the water and see what happens. So what came first, the torpedo or the egg? Well, an egg, duh, because it comes out of a chicken's butt. <laughs> so in modern language as we've discussed a torpedo is an underwater self-propelled explosion but historically the term was applied to primitive naval mines and spar torpedoes spar torpedoes being the ship jousting right exactly the ship jousting uh these were used during the early modern period up to the late 19th century so in the early 17th century, torpedoes were created by the Dutch, a guy named Cornelius Drebbel, who was working for King James I. He attached explosives to the end of a beam affixed to one of his submarines, and this is what was called a spar torpedo. I'm, I'm sorry, submarines came before torpedoes? Like, I knew diving bells were a thing, but... You're talking something that's actually a manned craft going underwater, propelled, and being able to surface on its own. Well, I don't know if it would be that. It might be a semi-submersible. Without being able to actually see it, we can only go by what the guy says. Okay. He claimed it's a submarine, but I don't, I can't. It's not in front of me. I don't have a picture, so I can't tell you. Maybe submarine means something different to 17th century Dutchmen. Maybe. Now, they were used during the English expeditions to La Rochelle in 1626, but they weren't very good, you know, because they're brand new. So now we get to what we know are actual early submarines, the Turtle. It was used to try to lay a bomb with a timed fuse on the hull of the HMS Eagle, but it didn't work. And this was, you know, during the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. So in the early 1800s, Robert Fulton, when he was in France, he had the idea of destroying ships by introducing floating mines under the bottom of their boats using submarines. And he coined the term torpedo 
because of the explosive charge that he put on his submarine, the Nautilus. But, you know, the French and the Dutch, they were like, submarine, a boat that's made to sink? This seems like a very dumb idea. Boats float. If your boat's underwater, bad things have happened. That's why I never volunteered for subservice. So I actually did a little digging just now. Uh-oh. Um, yeah, the, he is credited, the Dutchman, with creating the first working sub. King James I actually took a ride, allegedly. It could dive to about 15 or 20 feet. Cool. Okay, so Fulton then decides he's going to concentrate on developing a torpedo-like weapon, which is independent from submarine deployment. And in 1804, he finally was able to get the British government on board. And so they used his, quote, catamaran against the French. So back in this time, like uh, the, the Revolutionary War torpedo, that was, that was little more than a, a fused bomb. Um, what, would other ones, like if they're being placed you know, preemptively for her protection? Would they be, you know, sensitive to touch? Or are we still at the point where you set it, you light the fuse, and you try and paddle away? During the Revolutionary War, we had magnetic and uh, also touch. Really? Yes. I believe so. Well, I mean, we're going to get into all that. But yeah, uh, like last episode or the couple episodes ago, remember when they had anchored them to the bottom? Yeah. And they were ineffective because the water rose so high that they just floated right over them. Mm -hmm. Those were touch. If they would have touched them, they would have went boom. So, uh, yeah. So, April 1804, a there was a torpedo attack on French ships that were anchored at Boulogne. And a follow-up attack in October... There were a number of explosions, but there was no significant damage, so they were like, eh, this doesn't work. We're done. So Fulton goes to the U.S. government in 1807, and he destroys a boat in New York, New York's harbor. As a flex, like, look how cool my thing is as a temper tantrum? More as... Look at what I can do. You want to buy it and support it? Support me? <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. I make the explosives now. Exactly. Now, development did get a bit slower because Fulton was more getting focused on his steamboats. So during the War of 1812, naval mines were employed to try to destroy British boats to protect American Harbor. So they were mining the harbors okay so they brought in a submarine to deploy mines in new london's harbor to try to destroy the hms romulus but that was a failure this made a british captain named hardy warn the americans to stop trying to destroy his boat in this <laughs> cruel and unheard of warfare or he would order every house near the shore to be destroyed. So he's pretty much saying, guys, stop it. 
or I will blow up those houses. <laughs> and he's serious, too. Yeah. So the Russians used torpedoes during the Crimean War in 1855 against the British in the Gulf of Finland. And they used a early form of chemical detonator. So during the American Civil War, the torpedo was referred to as a contact, what we would call today as a contact mine, which is what we were talking about just a little while ago. These were floating on or below the water surface using an air-filled demijohn or a similar flotation device. These were, of course, very primitive, and a lot of times they just prematurely exploded. Don't worry, I'm sure it happens to all the mines sometimes. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> now, they could be detonated on contact, or they could have the contact set to a fuse or a timer that would time that would count down and then explode. Now, they did have electrical detonators, but they were very infrequently new tech. The USS Cairo was the first warship to be sunk in 1862 by an electrically detonated mine. Spar torpedoes were also used. There was a, this is an explosive device mounted at the end of a spar up to like 30 feet away from the bow of the boat. A lot of times they would be underwater and then they would be rammed into target boat. So these spar torpedoes aren't some, you know, fella decked out in nightly regalia on the bow of the ship just cometh at me. Charge. Only in your imagination. Okay, well, I was enjoying that picture in my head. Keep it. It's all yours. <laughs> Copyright XO Steve. I'm telling you, jet ski jousting is the sport of the future. <laughs> so the spar torpedoes were used by the Confederate submarine H.L. Hunley to sink the USS Houstonic. But these weapons were almost were also famously known to cause just as much damage to the people that used it as to the target. Well, you were saying maybe 10 minutes ago, just being close to these explosions is dangerous to your... Yeah. So you've heard the phrase, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, right? I could smile and nod and say yes, or I could say that is completely new to me and be honest. Wow, I thought that was really famous. No. Well, it is. You just didn't know it. Okay. Is is it from a movie? No, it's from history. Oh. Oh, this is a history podcast. Yeah. So to everybody else out there who actually has heard that phrase before, this is from Rear Admiral David Farragut during the Battle of Mobile Bay in 1864. He said that, and he was referring to the minefield that was laid at Mobile, Alabama. So there's thousands of other people going, that's where it came from. And the XO is just like, thanks for the first time I've ever heard it. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've never heard that phrase before. Okay, well, hey, you're learning something. Like, honestly, that sounds like that sounds like a quote out of a World War II movie. Mm, no. 
And maybe it was used in a World War II movie. I'm not sure. I just never heard maybe. of it. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, no. This is where it's from. Well, add that to the list of uh, great quotes from uh, U.S. military officers. Yes, Rear Admiral David Farragut. May 1877, there was the Romanian War of Independence, a Romanian spar torpedo boat, the Randuncia attacked a Ottoman boat, the River Monitor Safi. This was the first time in history when a torpedo boat sank its target without sinking itself. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's taken 60 years, but we've done it. <laughs> All right, so now let's get into the modern torpedo, shall we? Uh, yes, the underwater missile. So the prototype of the self-propelled torpedo was created on a commission that was placed by Giovanni Lepidus, who was a Astro-Hungarian naval officer from Rijeka, that's modern-day Croatia. Ah. And this was at a at that time a port city of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, and it was also being created by a guy named Robert Whitehead, who was a English engineer, who was also the manager of a factory in town there. So in 1864, Lupus presented Whitehead with the plans for the Salva Costi, which was a floating weapon driven by ropes from the land that would be dismissed by the naval authorities due to the impractical steering and propulsion mechanisms. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's propelled by ropes on land, I'm... I'm seeing some problems if you want to get a little out to sea. Yeah. So in 1866, Whitehead invents the first effective self-propelled torpedo. And he called it the Whitehead Torpedo. So it was a acne-looking torpedo? Well, but I think it's just because his last name is Whitehead. How uninspired. Hey, he made sure he was remembered. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so the French and the German followed closely behind them, and the term torpedo came to describe self-propelled projectiles that traveled under or on the water. And by 1900, the term no longer included mines and booby traps, as submarines were added to the navies. And, you know, torpedo boats, torpedo boat destroyers were a thing now as well. I mean, why wouldn't they be? You're having a ship that's very small, potentially able to sink a ship many times its size. Yeah. So, Whitehead is not really able to improve on his machine because the clockwork motor, ropes, and surface attack mode contributed to a slow and cumbersome weapon. It worked, it just didn't work great. Right. But, you know, he kept thinking about the problem after the contract was done. And he eventually came up with a tubular type of device. This is... Does Sorry. Get your head out of the... Head out of the gutter. No, no. 
I'm just imagining like, oh man, I got this tubular idea. It's going to be radical. Oh, it's, it's tubular, dude. Exactly, exactly. What, what were you gotcha. thinking? Moving on. Keeping this PG. <laughs> <laughs> so this design was supposed to be able to run underwater by itself, powered by compressed air. That's that's an idea. Yeah, this resulted in a submarine weapon, the Minenschiff, or mine ship. This was officially the first modern self-propelled torpedo, and it was presented to the Austrian Imperial Navy on December 21st of 1866. Now, the first trials are not successful which is why they have trials. The torpedo was not able to maintain a course at a steady depth. So after a lot of work, Whitehead introduced a secret in 1868 to overcome this. It was a mechanism consisting of a hydrostatic valve and pendulum that caused the torpedo's hydroplanes to be adjusted to maintain a preset depth. Hmm. So after the Austrian government was like, we like this, we're investing, take our money. Whitehead started the first torpedo factory in Rijeka. And in 1870, he improved the devices so much that they are able to now travel about a thousand yards at a speed of about six knots. All right. 1,000 yards, 3,000 feet, 6 per hour. So at maximum range, it would take probably 4 or 5 minutes to get to your target, but back then, if they're completely unaware of it, because this is an entirely new technology, Mm -hmm. not bad. Yeah. By 1881, the factory is exporting torpedoes to 10 countries. Ah, capitalism. Oh, yeah. So the torpedo is powered by compressed air and has a explosive charge of gun cotton. Whitehead went on to develop more effective devices, demonstrating torpedoes capable of 18 knots in 1876 and 24 knots in 1886. Holy. And then capped out at 30 knots in 1890. Okay, Back in this time, that's just, nothing can outrun that, isn't it? Yeah, that's lightning fast. In, in this time. E- even yes. now. What, like, 30 knots is huge. I was going to say, like, I mean, obviously, I'm not sure what you can or can't say regarding, you know, maintainable average speed for an aircraft carrier, like the one you served Classified. on. Exactly, exactly. But um, 30 knots is not jump change even now. No. Uh, most modern container ships are doing, I believe, close to 30 knots. Maybe their top speed is like 25, 28. And that's top speed, not average cruising speed. Yeah. Uh, so just as a quick, quick Google, the average speed of different types of ships, bulk carriers would go at 13 to 15 knots container ships 16 to 24 knots oil and chemical tankers 13 to 17 knots 
Roro ships are 16 to 22 knots, and cruise ships are 20 to 25 knots. Yeah, 30, 30 knots is booking. Yeah. And, of course, these are all civilian vessels because military vessels are all classified. So, so the Royal Navy visited Rijeka for a demonstration in 1869. And the next year, they ordered torpedoes. Amazing, isn't that? Look, it's a effective weapon. Hmm. I, I, I wonder what these Austro-Hungarians have. Holy crap, that's amazing. We'll take your entire stock. Yeah. Now, in 1871, the next year, the British Admiralty paid Whitehead 15,000 pounds for certain parts of his developments. And they started cranking out their own torpedoes in Woolwich at the Royal Laboratories in 1872. And then in 1893, the Royal Navy torpedo production was transferred to the Royal Gun Factory. So the British later established a torpedo experimental establishment at HMS Vernon and a production facility at the Royal Navy torpedo factory in Greenock in 1910. You can't go visit them. They're closed. Sorry. Oh. So Whitehead saw this and he's like, well, now I have to open a factory near you guys. You know that, right? And he opens one in Portland Harbor in 1890. And this facility continued to make torpedoes until the end of World War II. I, I mean, if uh, business be booming. Yeah. Now, the Royal Navy, their orders were not as big as expensive so all the torpedoes were mostly exported there were a number of torpedoes produced at Rijeka with diameters from 14 inches and upwards the largest was at 18 inches around and 19 feet long do you think Whitehead may have been compensating for something he might have been this was made of polished steel or phosphor bronze with a 200-pound gun cotton warhead. It was propelled by three-cylinder Brotherhood radial engine using compressed air at around 1,300 PSI and drove two contra-rotating propellers and was designed to self-regulate its course and depth as far as possible. So when you were describing you know, this using compressed air for propulsion. My initial thought was, you know, effectively someone, like, taking a a fire extinguisher or something and just knocking off the nozzle and letting it skip across the water. That's not what this was doing. No. It was using compressed air to drive propellers. Okay. So Whitehead then purchased the rights to the gyroscope that was invented by Ludwig Ulbery in 1888. But soon found that it was not very accurate. <laughs> so a couple of years later, he purchased a better one to improve the control of his designs. And it came to be nicknamed the Devil's Device. I assume because it was so effective? Yes. So 
now Germany is producing torpedoes and exporting them to Russia, Japan, and Spain. And in 1855, Britain was like, oh, crap, now we need a crap ton of torpedoes and orders 50 of them. Only 50? <laughs> but they couldn't be delivered. It was too many. How many torpedoes was this factory making in a year? Well, you also got to understand, they're exporting them to 10 other countries. Well, and as soon as I ask that, it's like, wait, this is before the assembly line. This is all done by hand, not machine. Yeah, this is this is back in days of yore where uh, everybody's doing everything by hand. No machine yes, assistance. In including the kids. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, those eight-year-olds have to earn uh, two pence a day somehow. Yeah. So by World War One, Whitehead's torpedo is a huge worldwide success. And his company is able to maintain a monopoly on torpedo production. So the entire world's torpedoes are being made by one company. Wait, so this guy was able to play all sides in World War One and get away with it? Because his weapons were just that effective? Yeah. Up till this point. Oh, oh, up to pre-World War One. Gotcha, gotcha. And by this point, his torpedo had grown to 18 inches with a maximum speed of 30 and a half knots. And the warhead is 170 pounds now. Okay. That's not chump change. So now the Americans were like, hmm, you know what? We got to make our own. So Lieutenant Commander John A. Howell starts designing. And his design is driven by a flywheel and is much simpler and cheaper. So it's produced from 1885 to 1895, and it ran straight, leaving no wake, which means it cannot be seen from a lookout on the boat. A torpedo test station is set up in Rhode Island in 1870, and the Howell torpedo was the only United States Navy model until Whitehead torpedoes produced by Bliss and Williams entered in 1894. Now, uh, you know, the Americans were like, you know, our stuff has to be bigger. So they went right to the 18-inch versions. We, we do love our big boom. <laughs> so the U.S. Navy started using Whitehead's torpedoes in 1892 after a American company got the manufacturing rights. So now they can say, it's made in America. We like them. <laughs> so at this time, the Royal Navy introduces the Brotherhood wet heater engine in 1907 with the 18-inch Mark 7, which greatly increased the speed and range over compressed air engines. So the wet heater type engine became the standard in many major navies up to and actually during World War II. So ships of the lines were taken over by ironclads and then they were taken over by dreadnoughts which started with the HMS dreadnought. So these boats are incredibly powerful, very heavily armored, and also slow. More akin to call them uh, floating fortresses than, you know, sailing ships. Yeah. Like they, they can move, but it it's more of, we're getting to where we want to go, not so much we're maneuvering during battle, effectively. Yeah. So because of all this, the 
This allowed for the possibility of small, fast ships built at a much lower cost to come in with torpedoes to cripple and sink. You know, so hopefully it can run around in circles just launching torpedoes. And because of how slow the guns on the battleships are to pivot around and fire, you know, hopefully they can't get hit. So is that what kind of started, you know, what what's now, you know, used as the carrier group for fleet organization where you would have a dreadnought and then smaller ships to protect the dreadnought and smaller ships still to protect those ships? Yeah, battle fleets. Yeah. 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 Okay. The first boat designed to fire the self-propelled torpedoes was the HMS Lightning. And she was built in 1877. The French was like, those are our enemies. We cannot allow this. We are going to build the Topiller number one. And she's launched in 1878. So at the same time, inventors were trying to build guided torpedoes. Prototypes are being built by people like John Erickson, John Lewis Ley, and Victor Von Schiele. So two Johns versus a Victor. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, there's other guys. The first practical guided missile was patented by Lewis Brennan, who was in Austria in 1877. This was designed to run at a depth of 12 feet and was fitted to an indicator mast that just broke the surface of the water. They did have a light on the mast for night operations, but it's only visible from behind it. There are two steel drums mounted one behind the other inside the torpedo, each carrying several thousand yards of high-tension steel water. Wire, not water. Steel water! <laughs> Steel wire. <laughs> the drums connected via differential gear and ultra-contra rotating propellers. If one drum was rotated faster than the other, then the rudder was activated. The other ends of the wires were contact connected to steam-powered winding engines that were arranged so that the speeds could be varied within fine limits, giving the, giving the torpedo sensitive steering controls. The torpedo could get speeds of 20 knots using a wire that was one millimeter in diameter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, later they increased the thickness of the water to 1.8 millimeters so they could get up to 27 knots. Okay. Wire. It used to be in steel wire drawing, so that's, especially back then, when all this was done by hand, very impressive. Yeah. The torpedo was fitted with elevators controlled by a depth-keeping mechanism, and the fore and aft rudders were operated by differential between the drums. So, Brennan goes to Britain, where the Admiral T looked at the torpedoes, and they were like, um... This will never work on boats. But the war office was like, Admirals? Shut up. <laughs> You're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're all right. But everyone else is an idiot. Yeah. 
So in early August 1881, a special royal engineer committee was told to inspect the torpedo and report directly to the Secretary of State for War, a guy named Hugh Childers. The report recommended very strongly that a improved model be built at the government's expense. And in 1883, an agreement was reached between Brennan and the UK government. And the Inspector General Fortifications, a Sir Andrew Clark, appreciated the value of the torpedo. And in spring of 1883, a experimental station was built at Garrison Point Fort Sheerness on the River Medway. So between 1883 and 1885, the Royal Engineers started playing with torpedoes. And in 1886, the torpedo was recommended as a harbor defense torpedo. And it was used by the British Empire for 15 years. All right. Okay. So we're coming up to 55 minutes, and we have just scratched the... <laughs> surface of this well it's a weapon system that's been around for depending on how you want to look at it pre-us navy modern iteration yeah. having its uh early origins over a century and a half ago but I, I i think we've covered at least the transitional stage from torpedo equals mine to torpedo equals ship jousting to torpedo means something we throw in the water and point in a direction and hopefully it hits. Yes. So no more confusion? No more confusion. Okay. So uh, what I'll do is I will finish this later. <laughs> How about that? And then you can listen to it as just a regular old fan. I, I can do that? That's allowed? I am allowing it. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to give the sign off? Well, we have to honor one of our veterans first. This is true. This is true. All right, so we are teamed up with HeroCards.us to honor our fallen angels. So today we're going to honor GM3 Paul Henry Carr. His hometown was Chicota, Oklahoma. Served aboard the USS Samuel B. Roberts DE-413. He received the Silver Star and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was October 25th, 1944. Killed in action in the Lyat Gulf of off Samar Island, Philippine Sea. He was 20 years old. So he was born in February of 1924 to a family of sharecroppers in Chicota, Oklahoma. Paul Henry Carr was the only son among eight sisters. He attended Chicota High School, where he excelled as a center on the football team. After working on the farm, after graduating, Carr joined the United States Navy and was signed to a destroyer escort ship, the USS Samuel B. Roberts, DE-413, in the Pacific Theater during World War II. As a gunner's mate third class, he led a gunnery crew that manned one of the Roberts' five-inch mount gun mounts. And in October of 1944, Carr's ship sailed to the Philippines as part of a small flotilla, looking to protect an amphibious assault and free the islands from Japanese control. 
On October 25th, off the island of Samar in the Gulf of Layette, it quickly became clear that the Japanese naval forces were much larger than the U.S. naval planners had anticipated. Before the battle began, Lieutenant Commander Robert W. Copeland announced to his crew on the Roberts, quote, This will be a fight against overwhelming odds, from which survival cannot be expected. We will do what damage we can. Author Wilford P. Deck in the December 1966 issue of American Heritage wrote, quote, The overall battle for Lyat Gulf, spread across a total area twice the size of Texas, was the greatest sea fight in history. Every element of naval warfare, from submarine to aircraft, was involved. And when it was over, the Imperial Japanese Navy had ceased to exist as a fighting unit. The United States and her allies had undisputed control of the Pacific Ocean. So the Samuel B. Roberts launched its torpedoes against the Imperial Japanese cruiser Chokai, crippling the enemy's ship. To protect the American escort carriers, Lieutenant Commander Copeland ordered the Roberts' two five-inch guns to fire on the Japanese heavy cruiser Chikuma and GM-3 car and his aft gun crew fired almost all of their 325 rounds causing extensive damage to Chikuma's bridge and superstructure. Enemy shells then struck the Roberts, disabling one of its boilers and cutting power to Carr's gun, forcing his crew to fire manually until the gun overheated. A breach explosion resulted, killing or wounding Carr's entire crew. Although mortally wounded himself, Carr refused to leave his gun mount, trying to manually load the last shell until he succumbed to his wounds. After the order was given to abandon the Samuel B. Roberts, the ship sank into the Philippine Sea less than six months after being commissioned. Of its 228 crew members, 89 were lost, but not before they played a critical role in preventing a superior Japanese force from attacking the Allied amphibious invasion fleet. The heroism and ferocity of the Samuel B. Roberts in one of the U.S. Navy's fiercest battles is legendary and the Roberts is referred to in Navy circles as the destroyer escort that fought like a battleship. I was going to say, I think I recall us going over this particular ship for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, we've gone over the Samuel B. Roberts before. The full story of the Samuel B. Roberts is conveyed through the memoirs of Lieutenant Commander Copeland, who survived the battle and later rose to the rank of Rear Admiral in his book, The Spirit of the Sammy B. For his bravery in the face of overwhelming odds, GM3 Carr was awarded the Silver Star. His citation reads, The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Silver Star posthumously to Gunner's Mate 3rd Class Paul Henry Carr, Naval Serial Number 8497679, United States Naval Reserve, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity as gun captain of a 5-inch 38 mount on the USS Samuel B. Roberts DE-413, in action against Japanese forces off Samar Island during the Second Battle of the Philippine Sea on 25 October 1944. With the power of the rammer lost and mechanical failures in the ammunition hoist, gunner's mate third-class car manned his station steadfastly in the face of continuous close-range fire of enemy guns during an attack by a numerically superior Japanese surface force on the Samuel B. Roberts. By his outstanding technical skill and courageous initiative, Gunner's Mate 3rd Class Car was instrumental in causing rapid and heavy fire from the gun to inflict damage upon the enemy heavy cruiser. Although mortally wounded by the premature detonation of a powder charge, 
fired by hand. Gunner's mate third-class car tried unassisted to load and ram the only projectile available to that mount after order to abandon ship had been given. His aggressive determination of duty reflected the highest credit upon Gunner's mate third-class's car and the United States Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. The Oklahoma Military Hall of Fame cites Lieutenant Commander Robert W. Copeland, who wrote to Carr's wife, Gordy Lee, that Paul Carr, quote, was one of the most outstanding men. His gun was the pride of the ship's ordnance department, due not alone to his tireless energy, but due to his inspiring leadership, which shone forth like a beacon during the Battle of October 25th. Gun 2 was always the outstanding gun. That day it was superb. From any way we looked at it, Paul was the outstanding example of American inspiration and courage on board the Samuel B. Roberts that day. A courage and devotion to duty which was with him until his last breath. The Navy-guided missile frigate USS Carr, FFG-52, commissioned in July of 1985 and decommissioned in March of 2013, was named in his honor. So, GM3, Paul Henry Carr, thank you. All right, XO. All right. One it's, last it, time. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hope you folks enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If you did, we would love for you to reach out to us and give us your thought. You can do so with our email, usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also, also reach out to us via Twitter with our handle at USN History Pod. Whatever podcast app you are listening to, if you want to, you know, subscribe, we always appreciate that. If you want to leave a comment, we can read it on the air if you like. We're also on YouTube now, so I'm contractually obligated to ask for you to like, comment, and subscribe. <laughs> and if you want to engage with us more directly, you can find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Until next time, we both wish you fair winds and following seas. And, and and everybody, say goodbye to the XO. Oh, you'll get a new one. Yeah, we'll get a new one, but it doesn't mean that, uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, folks. Thank you. All right. Bye, everybody. See you later, everyone. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-